High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Right, I thought to get off to a sort of uh, relatively relaxed uh, uh, start, shall I say, uh, having just returned full of the Northern Hemisphere in my, in my head, I would invite a colleague on who hasn't been on for quite a while. He's been on a sort of sabbatical, I guess. And we're going to just sort of chat about a couple of sort of broad issues that we may not be thinking about um, that much, but that deeply affect our... Uh, our politics. So I'd like to welcome back uh, my colleague, Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman. Good morning, sorry. If, um, if, if, if that was a sabbatical, uh, please, please may, may the good Lord protect me from another. <laughs> yes, we, you know, be careful what we wish for, so they say. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, as I said, Herman, we're really just picking up on some issues uh, to chat about, some of which we have chat about, chatted about in a, in a different context. And it was something, I, I mean, the sort of fates have combined on this. I'd st- I've written a draft article, which I hope to tidy up and publish shortly, um, on, f- I think, Friday last week, in which I looked at the issue of whether the ANC actually understands that in order to achieve success, you need skills. And then to my surprise, amazement, Peter Bruce wrote a column in the, in the Sunday Times where he basically said the same thing, but uh, probably not as kindly as I would, um, and basically saying that they, they just they don't understand skills, they don't care about skills, skills don't mean anything, and that is why that is part of the failure to really get to grips with the crisis in our country and, um, you know, get the private sector properly involved where, this, where their skills are. I would see this as being linked to the fact that the, the primary motivation for employment in the public sector is cadre deployment. So mm. have we in fact been looking at a situation where ultimately the, the inadequacy or the f- absence of skills has, is actually what is destroying the country? I think so. I, I, I think that that um, that is what underlies uh, or sort of a, 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 a misacknowledgement of skills is what underlies uh, BEE or as we should call it blatant elite enrichment. It is what underlies cadre deployment. It is what underlies uh, preferential procurement. All of these are ways to um, control operations of the state of business, the actions of investors, um, to ensure that the preferred candidates of the ruling party are the deployees across society, irrespective of their skills suited mm. or their suitability to the job. Uh, and, and this comes from 1997, when uh, at least when the ANC at its uh, 50th uh, conference decided to adopt cadre deployment as official party policy. So when we have this question of does the ANC even understand the need for skills, I think the majority of the ANC does not. But we have to look at some people like Enoch Godungwana, who earlier uh, this year, I think, uh, indicated that state-owned entities and governmental departments might have some leeway in terms of 
getting past BEE requirements is sort of a, 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 a nod in the mm. direction of we're in such a crisis that perhaps it's time to put skills front and center again. Mm. And I think, Sarah, an interesting point that underlies this is the labor theory of value, mm-hmm. the Marxist theory of you are a valuable laborer, not if you add commercial value through a product or a service, but if you put in a lot of effort. Mm. And the moment you acknowledge that is the basis of your ideology, that it's not about what you deliver, it's not about output, it's about input, then you really open yourself Mm. up to a slippery slope where skills Mm. becomes a nice to have. I mean, one of, I mean, you once heard it quite a lot since ESCOM really imploded, um, that the, it's, it's, it's overstaffed to some extent, and there are too many people who have qualifications but not enough on-the-job experience, and too many people with experience but, lis- but, but missing qualifications that could add to that, uh, to that, uh, to those abilities. And I think one of the problems in, in taking a sort of very principled stance against, you know, defeating the apartheid enemy and, and getting whites out of the public sector, while it might be emotionally appealing, the problem is that the rules regarding the provision of skills apply in every society on earth, and that is that you cannot just throw out the, or, or encourage to leave the experienced people because you need those people to give the inexperienced people, what they need to become competent at their jobs. I mean, we've all had it where, I mean, every professional will have experienced their first day in the practical workplace and discover that they cannot recognize what degree they studied because the life is so different. They've got so much new to learn. Everything is completely, uh, um, you know, what, what did I do for the last five years or whatever it is? And that's mm-hmm. the point is that every, to do every job successfully entails, um, Knowledge, training, and then experience. And, ex- and all, n- not all of them are the same, but you need all of them to succeed. And you usually need some years doing them before you can move up the, up the ladder. And, mm. y- you know, the value that would have done for young black employees to have these crusty old white employees in a place like ESCOM to mentor and teach and crap on them for doing something wrong, but then praise them for doing something right. That's how you learn on a job. That's how you contribute. Absolutely. We um, we have a colleague, you and I, uh, uh, I, I won't say his name, but let's just call him our tame Catholic bear. And he <laughs> is a terrifying colleague in the sense that his standards are so high and his criticism so honest and so direct that it is quite intimidating to to work with him. Mm. But you learn everything mm. you need to learn from from that approach. Mm. So we don't need a sort of a, a utopian kumbaya non-racialism approach to think how about, you know, let's just all learn from each other. We can be completely cynical mm. and completely ANC about this and say, if we don't want non-racialism, but we want a black middle class, let's exploit 
uh, in the language of, you know, Marxist ideology. Let's exploit those capitalists for their resources and their skills so that we can build this enormous new black middle class skills base. You don't have to go the non-racial route to come to the conclusion that perhaps it's good if you have a system like apartheid and you want to move on from that, you have to have that skills transfer. Because one of the cruelties and the injustices of apartheid was it ring-fenced the access to skills to a very particular socio-demographic group. And that is in an unjust and it is destructive to economic participation down the line. But the least you can do is ensure that those skills that might have been historically unfairly allocated to a very narrow group access those skills to a larger group. But then you get into the situation where ESCOM engineers do not have their contracts renewed or uh, because they are white, you have a situation where teachers in the mid-90s, early 2000s were gotten rid of out of the teaching force uh, because they were white. Um, you have civil servants, uh, academics, all you know levels of state operational function that need that you need for stability and progress. Many of those were simply either antagonized by especially the Mbeki government to vacate their offices because it was made clear to them they are not welcome, or quite directly asked to leave. Um, so, so, or, or just, you know, morally convinced over the first decade of democracy that you have no place here, white man, your time is gone. Missing the fact that there are skills to be inherited, even if we are going to be cynical mm-hmm. about black economic transformation. Mm-hmm. Well, sort of an allied matter is a, the utterances by some members of the Black um, Management Forum that say, and pretty much quote, they there is still too much wealth in white hands. How do you slice and dice wealth and cause it to change hands? I mean, you know, do we all have some wealth just sitting there waiting for it to be expropriated without compensation and handed over? And and this is such a it, it's such a warped view of history of the world and of commerce. I mean this the the, the, the guy who, who you're essentially quoting, Roel Causa, mm. is chairman of the Discovery Board and um he's uh, and he's high up in at Asupol. It's two significant commercial entities and, and it's terrifying that this man apparently doesn't understand how commerce mm. works mm. in the sense that uh, wealth should be the consequence of value add mm-hmm. and risk mm. and effort. Mm. If you combine those things together, that's how you, you know, accrue wealth to yourself. Mm-hmm. If you take a risk, if you put your hours, your talent um, on the line and you work hard and you accrue risk. Now, that's, of course, not a, a, a 100% applicable to all instances of wealth in history. Some people just win the socioeconomic lottery. But mm. the vast majority of wealthy people, and you can look at this in the United States, in South Africa, across the world, most of the so-called 1%, I think the latest figure I saw was 67% of the 1%, mm. won't be in the 1% four years from now and weren't in the 1% four years ago mm. because it, wealth is such a fluctuating Mm. issue because the world needs different things at different times. Mm. So if you want to have a wealth 
you know, de-distribution de or, or distribution plan, you must accept that you're going to disincentivize value-add economic participation. Mm. And so it firstly, it misses the point of commerce. It misses the point of you earn wealth by offering the consumer the solutions in the form of products and services that the consumer wants or needs. But it also misses the point that you cannot legislate people into wealth. Mm. You, 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 you need to ensure that what is being done adds value and what is more upsetting about what Mr. Koza said is he seems to assume that apartheid was a socioeconomic success. Mm, it mm, wasn't. Mm. It was an active styming of ingenuity, incentives for commercial and economic guts mm. to take those risks and build businesses. And then we come down to the question of do we have an economy focused on opportunity or do we have an economy focused on redistribution? Mm. And it is a rather illuminating and worrying exposure if this is sort of the commercial, the business, the corporate mm. side mm. of ideological thinking. An element, there's clearly an element because there's much to this issue, is the fact that People are not in the business sector who do well in, in say, in, in big business. They're not parachuted into sort of multi-million rand salaries at the age of 28. Um, they, they start much lower and they usually only get into these categories in their, at their best, their late 40s, but more likely they're in their 50s. And one of the problems is even with the change to democracy, you still get, will have had, um, White business having, white businessmen having a, a, a time advantage, if I can put it that way, uh, mm. putting everything else aside. Whereas to, for, for black businessmen to get into, into the area and then to move up mm -hmm. will come up from behind just time wise. In other words, you know, even 30 years later, you can't put a timeline on it. You can't say mm. 35 years time we'll, or after 35 years we'll have our whatever we need. It's, 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 it's flexible because, as you say, nothing is the same as anything else. No one is the same as anything else. And it, 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 what you'll find is that, say, where we are now, the cohort of, of capable men to do these jobs happens still probably to be white in their 50s. Mm. Um, the number of black men in their 50s who have the, those level of skills has not yet been reached, but it's a matter of mm. time. It, it, it will happen, and, and the more space you give to grow business, the, the quicker it will happen, never mind the education and training and all the other stuff. Absolutely. If, if, if we assume that someone goes to university at the age of 18, 19, and they graduate at the age of 21, 22, that means that the cohort of university graduates of the mid-90s when the changeover from apartheid to a constitutional democracy became codified, those people, exactly as you say, 30 years later would now be in their mid-50s. We can assume that that generation is still the last generation to be explicitly favored by mm. the apartheid regime in terms of opportunities for education. We yeah. can assume that the current crop of CEOs, COOs, the top management will unfortunately or fortunately, however you slice this historical cake of injustice, mm -hmm. be white, likely men, because this is 
the the effects of history. You mm. cannot um, – Samadora Fikeni once said that the DA microwaved young black leaders into senior positions. And I think that's such a good way to look at mm. it. You can't microwave competence, 30 years' worth of commercial expertise just to have a specific skin color in a specific suite at the top corner office. So if we are going to take a reasonable and rational view of this, we must anticipate that the true first generation of corporate and commercial leaders from a post-apartheid educational era will only come through in the next 10 years. Mm. Those people will have immense skills Mm. if we give them the opportunity to practice those skills Mm. in a competitive market. But you cannot pretend that 30 years is... Irrelevant to the question of have we changed Mm. the social demographics of our country to be more, you know, uh, uh, no longer along racial lines. And a a, a point that I think is quite often forgotten is in South Africa, we've got a very rich history of name change, Mm. Uh, cities, streets, but also businesses. Mm. I would love Barclays Bank Mm. and Volkskast Bank. To acknowledge the fact that they are today APSA and RMB and, 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 and FNB, these countries who couldn't be close enough to the apartheid government. Our erstwhile colleague, John K. Berman, said he never met a South African corporate who did not love the state or the government of the day. Mm-hmm. These entities that now preach racial transformation were exactly the Bruderbond companies with some smart PR dodging the consequences of insider uh, Bruderbond type politics and socioeconomic opportunity. And if these companies now come and say, look, we, we need more of this insiderism this insiderism that created us under apartheid that we inherited in the last 30 years and we've changed the name slightly to go from Volkskast to APSA. These are exactly the corporate entities that have played the game of BEE so well mm. that they have essentially escaped the consequences of that change. Mm. That insiderism of the boardroom has just included a few black faces. And of course, that's the consequence of BEE because BEE was never about value add. It was, can we get a black face like Cyril Ramaphosa in our boardroom so that we, the folks cassiers of South mm-hmm. Africa, can maintain this insider position? Hold on for us, uh, Herman. We will be back after the break. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Herman, just to show that this is truly a popery, I'm going to skip one issue that I thought we would discuss and take it completely differently. Um, uh, because, and I wanted to ask you this question as someone who's uh, a very strong practitioner of his faith, and that is this. I, I get quite a lot of uh, information from foreign institutions, NGOs, who write about the Middle East extensively. And a theme that keeps coming up is the extraordinarily um, tragic persecution of Christians in Middle Eastern countries. And, you mm. know, whether it be Egypt or Syria or Iraq, it, it, it's, and it's different groupings of different types of, of different uh, 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 aspects of, the, of Christian faith. And yet you just 
never hear, or I'm, I'm not aware of much about the, the churches, the formal bodies, the, 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 the guys who look after the, the, the belief, the, the faith, the following the faith of the world. You don't hear them. Where are they? Why aren't they there? Yeah, no, I must say when, when then Prince Charles, now King Charles is one of them, if, you know, outperforms you in terms of calling for a specific Christian PR mm. action. Um, then you know you might have some introspection to do because mm. a few years ago, uh, King Charles now, um, made this point, um, with, with ga- gaining, I think, more attention than, than most churches, uh, across the world manage. And this is a very real issue. I, um, the, the, the data is, is, is sketchy. Um, but worrying. We see that between the four, uh, the, or, or, you know, uh, 2021 and 2022, um, uh, there was uh, analysis done by uh, the Eurasia Review in, a, in a, a paper called Christians in the Middle East, a, forgot, a persecuted and forgotten people, that put the numbers as follows, that 5,621 Christians were killed, 4,542 were arrested and 5,259 were kidnapped. Over 2,110 churches or church buildings were targeted with violence uh, and more than 360 million Christians were exposed to deliberate discrimination or high levels of persecution. All of these numbers are just because of their Christian Mm. faith, not because they were Christian that committed a crime, it was deliberately for their Christian faith. Those are, are worrying numbers, and one does wonder why isn't this a bigger story. I must say I'm not a massive fan of the Pope, but he has, over the last few years, been a voice of um, a calling for action on this. But it is worrying. It is worrying that there seems to be, and I like your phrase, uh, you know, muscularity. You, uh, that, that there's been a lacking mm. muscularity, uh, a muscular fortitude mm. in terms of, uh, the Christian religious community standing up with, for, and in defense of, mm. of our, uh, brothers and sisters in the Middle East. It is, it is worrying. I mean, what, you know, the, 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 the complexity of the matter is that we, we're talking about countries that are majority Muslim. They are Muslim countries. So I was wondering whether there isn't a sort of, um, timidity or fear of, on the part of the church hierarchy in dealing with the the governments or the presidents or whatever it may be because they're they're, they're, they're afraid of an aspect of, of Islam or they're afraid of offending when you know if, if any group of people whether it be Muslim, Jewish or, or, or Christian you know, should be defending their, the faith and saying, you know, you do, you've, you've, you've got to, you, you've got to put a stop to people killing people because, because of apostasy or, or, uh, mm. because they're simply not, not Muslim, etc., etc. I'm sounding a bit simple on this, but it's, it's, it's surely, it's, it's, at very least, it's a serious, it's got to be a serious ongoing dim- diplomatic issue that the church must resolve. I mean, I know that in China, one of the things with the Catholic mm. Church is it sort of reached an agreement, I can't recall the name of the agreement, where for a certain amount, to be allowed to do certain activity, um, you know, the church has agreed to do, uh, not, not do a whole lot of other. And of course, that's 
the kiss of death because mm. that indicates the autocracy that you're dealing with and that they'll mm. give you that much and no more. And that's, that cannot be tenable for, for a church. And it, it sort of reminds me of the shakedown that you discussed a bit earlier. It's, it's negotiating with terrorists mm. and, and, and it is a, a, a very timid approach to solving this problem. But I think there's a very interesting historic, historical discrepancy here in the sense that um, for much of the last century, um, the Christian faith, uh, while not officially, you know, endorsed by the American state or the British state or, or European states, but very much part of that cultural mm. uh, package mm. and legacy, the Christian faith has had powerful governments on its side, mm. if I could put it that way. And if we look across the world, we see that deteriorating, the, the center of gravity of Christianity, where it is growing most, where it is most dynamic, most uh, proactively engaged with other faiths in societal measures, that uh, Christianity started in the Middle East, its weight of gravity then shifted to uh, Europe, then its weight of gravity shifted towards sort of the Anglosphere. But we see now over the last 50 years especially, the, the, the gravity, that center of gravity moving towards the third world, mm. South America, Africa, and parts of Asia. Yeah. And the concern there is that those are countries with dynamic religious communities where Christians feel welcome uh, in, in, in some cases, but it's growing, but without the geopolitical power mm. that the Christian Western world mm. used to have. So you have this timid American, British Christianity that is becoming all the more diluted. It doesn't have that muscularity to stand up for the defense of freedom of faith. Mm. If you look at the Church of England, if you look at the Episcopalian Church, the Methodist Church, these big Anglo-Western churches that used to have the ear of power, they no longer have that say-so. So there's this disconnect between where the power lies to act geopolitically in defense of persecuted Christians and the Judeo-Christian tradition of values and where actually the real belief and the vibrancy in that faith, in that moral framework is. There's a disconnect now where the power and the dynamism is no longer partnered as it was perhaps 100 mm -hmm. years ago. No, they, they, they sound like they have the, well, until recently, shall I say, the backbone of big business in South Africa, you know. <laughs> um, which would be, uh, which, which would, and, and there's no doubt you can see them, the, as we said, the muscularity in the, in the way the Anglican Church in, in Africa has responded to issues compared to their, uh, to their European mm. count, um, counterparts. Herman, mm. thank you very much for going from the sublime to the, or, or perhaps from the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, no, a nice opportunity a... to, to, to look out the box and see what's out there. And much appreciated. Great to have you. A pleasure as ever, Sarah. Thank you and to the listener as well.